Section 6 of the History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by April Walters. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 1, Chapter 2 of the Chemical Knowledge Possessed by the Ancients. Part 1. Notwithstanding the assertions of Olaus Borachius and various other writers who followed him on the same side, nothing is more certain than that the ancients have left no chemical writings behind them and that no evidence whatever exists to prove that the science of chemistry was known to them scientific chemistry on the contrary took its origin from the collection and comparison of the chemical facts made known by the practice and improvement of those branches of manufactures which can only be conducted by chemical processes thus the smelting of ores and the reduction of the metals which they contain is a chemical process because it requires for its success the separation of certain bodies which exist in the ore chemically combined with the metals and it cannot be done except by the application or mixture of a new substance having an affinity for these substances and capable in consequence of separating them from the metal and thus reducing the metal to a state of purity the manufacture of glass of soap of leather are all chemical because they consist of processes by means of which bodies having an affinity for each other, are made to unite in chemical combination. Now I shall in this chapter point out the principal chemical manufactures that were known to the ancients, that we may see how much they contributed toward laying the foundation of the science. The chief sources of our information on this subject are the writings of the Greeks and Romans. Unfortunately, the arts and manufactures stood in a very different degree of estimation among the ancients from what they do among the moderns. Their artists and manufacturers were chiefly slaves. The citizens of Greece and Rome devoted themselves to politics or war. Such of them as turned their attention to learning confined themselves to oratory, which was the most fashionable and the only important study, or to history or poetry. The only scientific pursuit which ever engaged their attention were politics, ethics, and mathematics. For, unless Archimedes is to be considered as an exception, scarcely any of the numerous branches of physics and mechanical philosophy, which constitute so great a portion of modern science, even attracted the attention of the ancients. In consequence of the contemptible light in which all mechanical employments were viewed by the ancients, we look in vain in any of their writings for accurate details respecting the processes which they followed. The only exception to this general neglect and contempt for all the arts and trades is Pliny the Elder, whose object, in his natural history, was to collect into one focus everything that was known at the period when he lived. His work displays prodigious reading and a vast fund of erudition. It is to him that we are chiefly indebted for the knowledge of the chemical arts which were practiced by the ancients. But the low estimation in which these arts were held appears evident from the wonderful want of information which Pliny so frequently displays, and the erroneous statements which he has recorded respecting these processes. Still, a great deal may be drawn from the information which has been collected and transmitted to us by this indefatigable natural historian. 1. The ancients were acquainted with seven metals, namely gold, silver, mercury, copper, iron, tin, and lead. They knew and employed various preparations of zinc and antimony and arsenic, though we have no evidence that these bodies were known to them in the metallic state. 1. Gold is spoken of in the second chapter of Genesis as existing and familiarly known before the flood. The name of the first is Pizan, that which it is encompasseth the whole land of Havilah, 
where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. There is bdellum and the onyx stone. The Hebrew word for gold, zeb, signifies to be clear, to shine, alluding doubtless to the brilliancy of that metal. The term gold occurs frequently in the writings of Moses, and the metal must have been in common use among the Egyptians when that legislator led the children of Israel out of Egypt. Gold is found in the earth almost always in a native state. There can be no doubt that it was much more abundant on the surface of the earth and in the beds of rivers in the early periods of society than it is at present. Indeed, this is obvious from the account which Pliny gives of the numerous places in Asia and Greece and other European countries where gold was found in his time. Gold, therefore, could hardly fail to attract the attention of the very first inhabitants of the globe. Its beauty, its malleability, its indestructibility would give it value. Accident would soon discover the possibility of melting it by heat, and thus of reducing the grains or small pieces of it found in the surface of the earth into one large mass. It would be speedily made into ornaments and utensils of various kinds, and this gradually would come into common use. This we find to have occurred in America, where it was discovered by Columbus. The inhabitants of the tropical parts of that vast continent were familiarly acquainted with gold, and in Mexico and Peru it existed in great abundance. Indeed, the natives of these countries seem to have been acquainted with no other metal, or at least no other metal was brought into such general use, except silver, which in Peru was, it is true, still more common than gold. Gold, then, was probably the first metal with which man became acquainted, and that knowledge must have preceded the commencement of history, since it is mentioned as a common and familiar substance in the book of Genesis, the oldest book in existence, of the authenticity of which we possess sufficient evidence. The period of leading the children of Israel out of Egypt by Moses is generally fixed to have been 1,648 years before the commencement of the Christian era. So early, then, we are certain that not only gold, but the other six malleable metals known to the ancients were familiar to the inhabitants of Egypt. The Greeks ascribed the discovery of gold to the earliest of their heroes. According to Pliny, it was discovered on Mount Pangaeus by Cadmus, the Phoenician. But Cadmus's voyage into Greece was nearly coeval with the exit of the Israelites out of Egypt, at which time we learn from Moses that gold was in common use in Egypt. All that can be meant, then, is that Cadmus first discovered gold in Greece, not that he made mankind first acquainted with it. Others say that Thoas and Ecleas, or Sol, the son of Oceanus, first found gold in Panchaia. Thoas was a contemporary of the heroes of the Trojan War, or at least was posterior to the Argonautic expedition, and consequently long posterior to Moses and the departure of the children of Israel from Egypt. 2. Silver also was not only familiarly known to the Egyptians in the time of Moses, but, as we learn from Genesis, was coined into money before Joseph was set over the land of Egypt by Pharaoh, which happened 1,872 years before the commencement of the Christian era and consequently 224 years before the departure of the children of Israel out of Egypt. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the corn which they bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. The Hebrew word kemep, translated money, signifies silver and was so called from its pale color. Silver occurs in many other passages of the writings of Moses. The Greeks inform us that Erechthonius the Athenian or Achaicus were the discoverers of silver, but both of these individuals were long posterior to the time of Joseph. Silver, like gold, occurs very frequently in the metallic state. This, no doubt, was a still more frequent occurrence in the early ages of the world. 
it would therefore attract the attention of mankind as early as gold and for the same reason it is very ductile very beautiful and much more easily fused than gold it would be therefore more easily reduced into masses and thus formed into different utensils and ornaments than even gold itself the ores of it which occur in the earth are heavy and would therefore draw the attention of even rude men to them they have most of them at least the appearance of being metallic and the most common of them may be reduced to the state of metallic silver simply by keeping them in a sufficient time in fusion accordingly we find that the peruvians before they were overrun by the spaniards had made themselves acquainted with the mode of digging out and smelting the ores of silver which occur in their country and that many of their most common utensils were made of that metal silver and gold approached each other nearer in value among the ancients than at present an ounce of fine gold was worth from ten to twelve ounces of fine silver the variation depending upon the accidental relation of the supply of both metals but after the discovery of america the quantity of silver found in that continent especially in mexico was so great compared with that of the gold found that silver became considerably cheaper so that an ounce of fine gold came to be equivalent to about fourteen ounces and a half of fine silver of course these relative values have fluctuated a little according to the abundance of the supply of silver though the revolution in the spanish-american colonies has considerably diminished the supply of silver from the mines that deficiency seems to have been supplied by other ways and thus the relative proportion between the value of gold and silver has continued nearly unaltered that copper must have been known in the earliest ages of society is sufficiently evident it occurs frequently native and could not fail to attract the attention of mankind from its color weight and malleability it would not be difficult to fuse it even in the rudest ages and when melted into masses as it is malleable and ductile it would not require much skill to convert it into useful and ornamental utensils the hebrew word neheshet translated brass obviously means copper we have the authority of the book of genesis to satisfy us that copper was known before the flood and probably as early as either silver or gold and zillah she also bore tubal cain an instructor of every artificer in brass copper and iron the word copper occurs in many other passages of the writings of moses that the hebrew word translated brass must have meant copper is obvious from the following passage out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass brass does not exist in the earth nor any ore of it it is always made artificially it must therefore have been copper or an ore of copper that was alluded to by moses copper must have been discovered and brought into common use long before iron or steel for homer represents his heroes of the trojan war as armed with swords etc of copper copper itself is too soft to be made into cutting instruments but the addition of a little tin gives it the requisite hardness now we learn from the analyses of klaproth that the copper swords of the ancients were actually hardened by the addition of tin copper was the metal in common use in the early part of the roman commonwealth romulus coined copper money alone numa established a college of workers in copper ariorum fabrum the latin word os sometimes signifies copper and sometimes brass it is plain from what pliny says on the subject that he did not know the difference between copper and brass he says that an ore of os occurs in cyprus called chalcetis where os was first discovered here os obviously means copper in another place he says that os is obtained from a mineral called cadmia now from the account of cadmia by pliny and dioscorides there cannot be a doubt that it is the ore to which the moderns have given the name of calamine by means of which brass is made it is sometimes a silicate and sometimes a carbonate of zinc 
for both of these ores are confounded together under the name of cadmia, and both are employed in the manufacture of brass. Salinas says that os was first made at Chalcis, a town in Euboea, hence the Greek name Chalcos, by which copper was distinguished. The proper name for brass, by which is meant an alloy of copper and zinc, was arichalcum, or golden or yellow copper. Pliny says that, long before his time, the ore of arichalcum was exhausted, so that no more of that beautiful alloy was made. Are we to conclude from this that there once existed an ore consisting of calamine and ore of copper, mixed or united together? After the exhaustion of the orichalcum mine, the salustanum became the most famous, but it soon gave place to the livianum, a copper mine in Gaul named after Livia, the wife of Augustus. Both these mines were exhausted in the time of Pliny. The os marianum, or copper of Cordova, was the most celebrated in his time. This last os, he says, absorbs most cadmia and acquires the greatest resemblance to arichalcum. We see from this that in Pliny's time, brass was made artificially, and by a process similar to that still followed by the moderns. The most celebrated alloy of copper among the ancients was the os corinthium, or Corinthian copper formed accidentally, as Pliny informs us, during the burning of Corinth by Mummius in the year 608, after the building of Rome, or 145 years before the commencement of the Christian era. There were four kinds of it, of which Pliny gives the following description. Not, however, very intelligible. White. It resembled silver much in its luster and contained an excess of that metal. Red. In this kind, there is an excess of gold. In the third kind, Gold, silver, and copper are mixed in equal proportions. The fourth kind is called hepatizon from its having a liver color. It is this color which gives it its value. Copper was put by the ancients to almost all the uses to which it is put by the moderns. One of the great sources of its consumption was bronze statues, which were first introduced into Rome after the conquest of Asia Minor. Before that time, the statues of the Romans were made of wood or stoneware, Pliny gives various formulas for making bronze for statues. Of these, it may be worthwhile to put down the most material. 1. To new copper, add a third part of old copper. To every hundred pounds of this mixture, twelve pounds and a half of tin are added and the whole melted together. Footnote. Pliny's phrase is plumbum argentorium, but that addition was tin. And consequently that plumbum argentorium meant tin, we have the evidence of Klaproth who analyzed several of these bronze statues and found them composed of copper, lead, and tin. End footnote. 2. Another kind of bronze for statues was formed by melting together 100 pounds copper, 10 pounds lead, 5 pounds tin. 3. Their copper pots for boiling consisted of 100 pounds of copper melted with 3 or 4 pounds of tin. The four celebrated statues of horses which, during the reign of Theodosius II, were transported from Chio to Constantinople, and, when Constantinople was taken and plundered by the Crusaders and Venetians in 1204, were sent by Martin Zeno and set up by the doge Peter Ziani in the portal of St. Mark, were in 1798 transported by the French to Paris, and finally, after the overthrow of Bonaparte and the restoration of the Bourbons in 1815, returned to Venice and placed upon their ancient pedestals. The metal of which these horses had been made was examined by Klaproth and found by him to be composed of copper, 993 parts, tin, 7 parts. Klaproth also analyzed an ancient bronze statue in one of the German cabinets and found it composed of copper, 916 parts, 
tin, 75 parts, lead, 9 parts. Several other old brass and bronze pieces of metal, very ancient but found in Germany, were also analyzed by Klaproth. The result of his analyses was as follows. The metal of which the altar of Crodo was made consisted of copper, 69 parts, zinc, 18 parts, lead, 13 parts. The emperor's chair, which had in the 11th century been transported from Harzburg to Goslar, where it still remains, was found to be composed of copper, 92.5 parts, tin, 5 parts, lead, 2.5 parts. Another piece of metal, which enclosed the high altar in a church in Germany, was composed of copper, 75 parts, tin, 12.5 parts, lead, 12.5 parts. These analyses, though none of them corresponds exactly with the proportions given by Pliny, confirm sufficiently his general statement that the bronze of the ancients employed for statues was copper, alloyed with lead and tin. End of section 6. Recording by April Walters.